Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, in here online, it is great to be with you all. What a wild time we are living in, huh? This is a bit of a crazy season in our community, in our culture, in our nation. And I'll be honest with you, I looked ahead at November and I struggled to figure out what exactly would be appropriate to preach on this month in the wake of what I knew was gonna be, turned out to be a very contentious election season. Uh, I knew that in this congregation, we were gonna have people feeling a whole range of different things this month. Uh, there would be a lot of frayed nerves, there would be anxiety, there'd be frustration. There, all of it was gonna be true uh, of, of people in our congregation. And I knew that if I wasn't careful, some of the things we might talk about could be potential landmines. So we might say something or do something that would uh, offend one group or another. And so I, I wrestled with exactly what to talk about this week. But I also knew that if we just completely avoided it and tried to go for something like, like I don't know, top five birds in the Bible or something like that, or, or uh, I don't know, the exegetical foundations of the book of Habakkuk, which actually I would find very interesting, but you know, whatever. If we were to completely avoid what we're going through as a culture, it'd be a missed opportunity because scripture has a lot to say to us in the time that we're living in now. And so ultimately we ended up with one clear truth, which is that you can't go wrong looking directly at the words of Jesus, right? If you're looking at the words of Jesus, you know uh, that you're in safe territory about how to live. And so that is what we are going to do. Uh, now, we've obviously been talking about the words of Jesus all last month as well, because we, did a, we just finished a whole series about the parables of Jesus, the short stories that he told that described a an upside-down kingdom. That's how we describe it, an upside-down kingdom. And, and all that month, we talked about the fact that, that through these parables, Jesus presents uh, God as a God who pours out his grace on those who least deserve it, right? God, God uh, has a, is establishing a kingdom in which humility is actually the greatest strength, not, not might or power or success, but humility is actually uh, the, what, what equates to greatness. A kingdom which elevates and honors those that the world considers nothing. Right? That's what we talked about. Jesus, he said uh, that in his kingdom, the last are first and the first are last. But one of the things we talked about is the fact that <clears throat> that is a message that not everybody is open to. You know, we don't all hear that and receive it with joy. We, we have to have ears to hear, as Jesus said, ears to hear if we want that message to actually sink in and change us. Because if we don't have ears to hear, the kingdoms of this world, uh, fame, wealth, power, success, you name it, those kingdoms are going to be way more attractive, right? So last month was all about what the kingdom of God is, this month we're looking at how then we should live if we want to be a part of that kingdom. How are we supposed to live? What is our life supposed to look like if we want to be a part of that kingdom? And to do that, we are going to look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's a, his most famous sermon uh, in the Gospels. We are going to talk about some stuff that is pretty outrageous. Loving your enemies. We're going to talk about turning the other cheek when you're, when you're slapped, presumably metaphorically. Uh, we're going to talk about building a faith which, which actually weathers the storms of this life. And we are going to talk about how you pray, how you talk to God when the world around you is just so, so broken. And we're going to see that, that even though in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is a lot more direct than he was with all of his parables. You know, he's, he's more explicit about what he's teaching in, these, in this sermon 
even so, his teachings are no less provocative. No less provocative. And many of the things that he says are so outrageous that you still need ears to hear if you actually want them to sink in. You got to have ears to hear. So before we look at scripture, here's what I want us to do. Let's just briefly pray together that we would have ears to hear. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word, I ask that your Holy Spirit would, would enter into our hearts, into our minds, and that you would allow us to have ears to hear what you have to say. I pray, Father, as I speak, that I would just disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain. Let us listen attentively to your word. And Father, I pray that it would change us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So the Sermon on the Mount. Why don't we find out how Jesus starts that sermon and go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, by the way, just again, watching online, just want to say hello. I don't know if you're, you know, sitting on the back porch enjoying the weather or if you're in your home or if you're in some other state. Who knows? Uh, someday, I just thought of this, someday, maybe like 50 years from now, someone will be live streaming our Grace Church service from space. I just thought of that. And how cool would that be? Um, <clears throat> You know, we'll get there. Space Church, it's happening. Uh, anyway, good to see you guys. And uh, obviously, if you're in the room, love you all. And uh, it's great to be with you. So Matthew, in his gospel, tells, he has a, a bit of a narrative of the ministry of Jesus that starts kind of small, and then it builds and builds and builds. And uh, we are kind of towards the beginning of that. Jesus has healed some people. He's given, he's spoken a little bit, but, but uh, it's only just now that the crowds are starting to form. He's starting to get a bit of a reputation. So let's see how he teaches these crowds. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. Uh, by the way, sitting down, that's how rabbis were in the teaching position. They sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. What we just read is often referred to as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, it's, it's a, an old Middle English word that means declarations of blessedness or supreme blessedness. And no, I don't know why we still call them uh, Beatitudes. I have no clue even what Middle English is. So you're going to have to come explain to me. If you know the answer of why we still call them that, please do tell me. But just suffice it to say, they are, it's a, it's a shorthand way of describing Jesus's declarations of who is blessed. Now, blessing, obviously in our culture, we talk about blessing, like hashtag blessed and all that, feeling blessed and all that. But, but in the Bible, blessing has a specific meaning that kind of weaves through the whole of scriptures. And it's really just this. Blessing is God's favor, okay? Blessing is the favor of God on you. If you are blessed, it means that God is with you. He's present with you. It means he's providing for you. He's close to you. He, your life is whole and complete because God has 
blessed you. His favor is on you, right? So Jesus is describing who are the people that that's true of. Who are the people that God's favor rests on? And so right off the bat, as you look at that list, you can see that this whole thing's a pretty outrageous thing to say. For Jesus to say that the poor are the ones that God favors or the ones who are in mourning, the persecuted. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? It's outrageous. You're saying, Jesus, that they are the ones that God's favor is resting on. I mean, come on. That's obviously not true, right? It's not true. It can't be because we know that the ones who are, who are wealthy in our world, they are the ones who are blessed. The, the ones who are healthy and, and successful and strong and powerful, they are the ones who obviously have God's presence, right? Well, at least that's what our assumption tends to be. That's what seems natural to us. And I got to tell you, it would have seemed very natural to people living in Jesus' time. Everybody back then knew that, that if you were on the top of the heap, right, if you were successful, if you were making it in the world, it was for one reason, because the gods or God was blessing you. And if you were suffering in some way, if you were struggling or you were sick or, or mourning or something, it was because God had abandoned you, had failed you, had, had walked away from you, who was displeased with you. That was abundantly clear to everybody. That was the assumption. But that is not what Jesus says, is it? That's not what he says. No, look at, look, look at what he says in, in verse 3. He says that the kingdom of heaven, which by the way, that's just shorthand for the rule and the reign of God in our world, God's intentions made right, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who have nothing. Verse 5, he says, it's the humble the humble, uh, the, the meek, the gentle ones, not the powerful and mighty, but the humble who don't try to take over the land, they're the ones that the whole earth actually belongs to. Or verse 7, he says, the merciful, those who are, you know, have mercy, they have compassion on other people, they are going to be the ones who receive God's mercy. Not the people who've, who've earned the mercy of God by doing all the right religious rituals, but the ones who act mercifully. He goes on, uh, he says those with pure hearts, those who try to bring peace in this world, they are the ones that God considers family. And then Jesus says this, he, he, he kind of paints the picture of some very, uh, people who are very much in suffering. He says they're blessed too. Look at verse four, people mourning the loss of loved ones. In other words, folks going through the, the hardest time of their life, deep grief. He says they're the ones that God's favor is on. Or, or verse 6, people who hunger and thirst for justice, think about what that means. If you're hungry for something or you're thirsty for something, what does it mean? It means you don't have that thing, right? So if you're hungry or thirsty for justice, it means you don't have justice. You are a victim of injustice. And again, Jesus is saying, yep, yep, victims of injustice, they're the blessed ones. Or verse 10, this one, it's wild, the persecuted the persecuted. In Greek, uh, which the New Testament was written in, the, the, the word persecution, it, it conveys the idea of being chased down, of being hunted, of being pursued, right? That's what it means to be pers per persecuted. So Jesus is saying that those who are being chased down and punished for doing right, they are being blessed by God. How could any of this be true? Right? How could any of this possibly be true? Well, the answer, I believe, 
lies in the person of Jesus himself. The person of Jesus. When we look at him, what we see is God in the flesh. Okay, that's a, there's a big theological wor- word for this, incarnation. God in the flesh. God made human. So when we look at Jesus, we're actually seeing God. We're seeing God. So when we see him, he's our perfect representation of God's character. So let's talk about this. What do we see when we look at Jesus? What do we learn about God as we look at, at the way that Jesus lived? Well, First of all, when we look at the story of Jesus, we see a God who chose to be born as a helpless infant to a family of nobodies. We see a God who chose to spend his time with sinful, disreputable people. We see a God who didn't have land or property or wealth on this earth, but chose a life of voluntary poverty and simplicity. We see a God who played with children who spoke to women, who touched the untouchable, people who in that day were considered worthless, that's who he spent his time with. And get this, we see a God, see a God who did not come to dominate the world and blast a bunch of evil people with laser beams from his eyes. We see a God who went to the cross for evil people, who allowed the sin and the brokenness of this world to do its worst to him, and then who willingly died in his love for imperfect humanity. That's what we see when we look at Jesus. We see a God whose character is defined by grace, incredible grace. So, okay, let's get back to the big question. How is is all the Beatitudes stuff possible? Why is it true? It's true because when we look at Jesus, We see the character of God and those people that he talks about, the humble, the merciful, the the peaceful people, they are living out that character in their own lives, aren't they? God's favor rests on them because they're doing what he does. They are working shoulder to shoulder with God, with Jesus. On the flip side, why are the poor and the persecuted and the victimized blessed? Well, because they are the ones that God spends his time with. They're the ones that that Jesus pursued. And of course, they want to be near him because they have nowhere else to turn. They're close to God. They're blessed by God because he is close to them. Ultimately, when we look at Jesus, we see the king of, of a kingdom which looks nothing like the values of our world. That is the character of God. It's an upside down kingdom. We call it that because as Jesus said, those who are last Those who are are at the bottom of the barrel, they are actually the ones on whom God's favor rests. It's upside down. The kingdom of heaven, God's blessing, belongs to them. Okay, so that's how Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. And I honestly, every time I read that, even after many, many years of hearing these verses, it still blows my mind when I really let it. Right? Jesus is coming out guns blazing with a radical new vision for the world. It's outrageous. And yet this is how Jesus describes the truth of God's character. So, okay. Oh, and by the way, it wasn't just the words that he spoke, was it? It was the way that he lived. So what are we supposed to do with this? This is the the big question that I always want to come to in a message. How do we respond? What are we supposed to do? Is it just something to think, oh, that's neat? Or are we supposed to actually do something with this? 
Well, I think we are. And to find an answer to that, I think uh, we need to keep reading in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and see what he says next. Okay. And by the way, these are important questions to ask. How do we respond? What do we do? Especially right now. Especially in this cultural moment, in the wake of this contentious election, uh, as our country continues to face hatred and division, and and as the pandemic is getting way worse, I mean, all of it, all of it, we have to ask the question, what do we do? So, let's pick up where we left off in verse 11 and find an answer. And by the way, real quick grammatical thing, Um, it's always important to look at, at things like this. Uh, verses 3 through 10, Jesus is talking kind of in the third person about them, those people, the poor, whatever. In verse 11, he switches, and you'll see it says that he's, he's talking to you. God blesses you. So what he's doing is he's now talking specifically to his disciples. And even though he was originally talking to people living 2,000 years ago, the truth is we follow Jesus as well. We are his disciples, and so when we read these words, he's talking to us as well. So let's read what he has to say. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's just thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless? Can you make it salty again? You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it can give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, for most of my life, when I've heard this passage about salt and light, it almost always starts in verse 13, right? It's as if Jesus finishes the Beatitudes, finishes all of that, and then he kind of says, okay, chapter two, and then he begins a whole new section of his sermon unrelated to the one before. But you got to remember that the original manuscripts of the Bible did not have section headings like teachings about salt and light. He didn't, they didn't have those. It didn't have chapter numbers or verses either. It was all continuous text. And I think we are very safe in understanding that what he says about salt and light connects directly to what he just taught about. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, look back at verse 11. Again, remember, he's talking to his disciples here. And he says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you because you are my followers. Literally, what he says there is, is on account of me. God blesses you when people mock you on account of me. Now, it is tempting when you hear that to, to think of that in terms of association. Uh, association, the, the disciples believe something, uh, some sort of theological fact which gets them labeled as a Christian and then they are persecuted for the label, Right? Does that make sense? That's what we normally think of when we, we hear that. We think about being associated with Jesus by having the label on you. However, that is not what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. That's not what it meant. It was not about labels. No, Jesus was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. Now, rabbi just means teacher, but it was a very specific thing to be a rabbi, especially to be a follower or a disciple of a rabbi. A disciple's job was not to just try to 
memorize and understand all the same theological facts of your rabbi. That was not the point of being a disciple. The point of being a disciple was to model your entire life on the life of your rabbi, to go where he went, to do what he did, to speak to who he spoke to, to live out the same values that he had. That's what it meant to be a disciple. Kind of like a, like a blacksmith's apprentice. You, you're trying to, to do and be like your master, like your rabbi, right? So that's what it meant to be a disciple. It wasn't about labels. It was about life. It was about living in the same way, to do what he did. And what did he do? Well, we just talked about this. It, he brought love and life and, and healing to the very people that he says are blessed. The ones rejected by the world, the poor, the, the marginalized, the victims of injustice. He brought God's blessing to those on the bottom of the barrel. And that is the life that his disciples were meant to model. So let's bring it to today, okay? We're disciples of Jesus too, right? If that's true, then that's the life that we are meant to model as well. We are called to live lives that look like the life of our rabbi. We are called to have lives that resemble his. We are supposed to be many Jesuses in this world. Little Christs, which by the way is where the word Christian even originated. Our lives should look like his. But guess what? The world that we live in, honestly, it does not look too kindly on that kind of living. Think back on the Beatitudes. If you were to, like Jesus, give your life to serve the poor, well, you're going to be mocked for being a bleeding heart, aren't you? People are going are to get offended by you because they feel like, oh, you're always judging me by the way that you live, right? You'll be mocked. You're a bleeding heart. If you choose the path of humility and gentleness, you are going to be labeled as weak and soft, if you choose to have mercy and compassion on people who think differently than you, uh, you have mercy on people from a different political party or a different ideology than you, you're going to be called a traitor to your kind. If you call for peace, you're going to be trampled over by the people who are calling for power. If you want a pure heart, well, let me tell you, there's a lot of influences in this world that want to defile it. If you work to bring justice to those who have been victimized, you are going to face the wrath of the victimizers. On and on and on. If you spend your time and your energy and your money on those that the world has rejected, the world will reject you too. That's how it works. We don't like to admit this sometimes, but if the kingdom of God is upside down, then following our king... Following Jesus means going downward in our lives, giving up ourselves, giving of our own lives. It means death, death to our own desires and complete surrender to his. And look, in a world built on success, that seems like a pretty foolish way to live, doesn't it? So what are we supposed to do? How, how do we often respond to this? Because it's so outrageous. We have a default response that we, that we tend to, to have. So what is it? What do we do? Well, I'll tell you what we often do. When our friends or our family start, start mocking us or criticizing our choices, 
How do we respond? We draw back, don't we? We, we pull back. We try to kind of dial down the Jesus stuff a little bit. We get a little bit quiet. We pull away. We, we, uh, you know, we make our faith a little bit more internal, a little bit less offensive to everyone else. I mean, sure, yeah, we, you know, we're Christians. We still do a few random acts of kindness for Jesus. We're nice to people, well, most people. You know, we're, we're generally good, nice people, but we don't dedicate our lives to loving like Jesus. We don't, we don't pour ourselves out for those that the world considers nothing. The world has rejected. Our faith, it becomes a label and nothing more. I mean, yeah, it's... it's it's a declaration on our Instagram profiles. That's pretty safe. Uh, it's some really nice, you know, home decor that we picked up at Hobby Lobby, but it is a label. It's not actually a full, total life surrender, is it? It's not a whole life sacrifice. Why is that a problem? It's a problem because we are the salt of the earth. We're the salt of the earth. Um, Verse 13, you know what salt did in the ancient world? Yes, it made food a little more tasty, but it also preserved good things. Uh, meat and fish and grain, they would use salt and pack it around what they wanted to protect and it would, it would be preserved. And here, let's get real nerdy really quick. Osmosis, right? Super cool. Osmosis, the salt actually draws moisture away from cells and so when bacteria gets close to the thing you're trying to preserve, uh, the salt shrivels up the bacteria cells. And as a result, the good things you're trying to preserve don't rot. Well, friends, let me tell you something. Our world is rotten. It's rotten with sin. It's rotten with injustice. It's rotten with hate and violence and pain. It is rotten. And we are the salt of the earth who are here to protect it. As disciples of Jesus, we are here to dry up the rot in his name. We are here to preserve the good things of this world. What good are we if we're just salt scattered on the path? We're also the light of the world. Verse 14. Now imagine, if you've never experienced this, imagine living in a place or in a time where there is no electricity. If that's you, and I've, I've had that opportunity a couple times, at nighttime, your only source of light is like the moon, uh, a lamp of some kind, or fire. That's it. That's your only source of light. And I got to tell you, in those settings, light, it comes to represent hope and safety and comfort. Light is a, is a really, really hopeful thing. Well, friends, it is nighttime out there. Our world is covered in darkness. People are lost and confused and terrified and anxious. They are longing for the hope that light can bring. As disciples, as followers of Jesus, we are here to shine the light onto the way of salvation, onto the way of renewal, onto the way of life. What good are we if we're going to hide that light under a basket, if we're going to draw back and play it safe? We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. So shine our light. We should shine our light for the world to see. We should get a little bit salty because it's our job. Surrender your life to the purposes of Jesus. Don't just say you're his disciple. Actually be his disciple. Do what he did in the world. Spend time with who he spent time with. You may be mocked for it. You may be hated for it but you will be blessed. 
You will experience the provision and the presence of God. You will, you will rest under his favor. Because when you do these things, you are standing shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Grace Church, can I call us to something right now? Look, I know our world is crazy these days. I know it is. And I know in a, in a chronically anxious society, it is so tempting for us to just draw back, to hunker down, to just kind of wait for the, the dust to settle. But that is not what we are called to do. Can we be the kind of church that works shoulder to shoulder with Jesus? Can we pursue those who've been rejected by this world? Can we give of our very lives for those who are at the bottom of the barrel? Can we love others regardless of whether they deserve it? Can we do that? Grace Church, can we be humble? Can we be merciful? Can we work together for peace? Look, just because election day is behind us does not mean our cultural divisions are magically healed. In fact, I think there's a lot more hate and division to come. But not here. Please not here, not at Grace Church. Let us be salt. Let us be light. That's what we're here to do. As Jesus said, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone, everyone may praise your heavenly Father. Let us be disciples of Jesus who showed us how to be blessed. Let us be disciples of Jesus who showed us a way of living that brings healing to our world.